Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Nashville police releasing more of what they know about the school shooting suspect. Democrats beginning to call for more gun control while Republicans say it's premature. And in the Trump hush money case, the grand jury won't vote on an indictment for at least 30 days. They're taking a pre-planned break. Meanwhile, the January 6th panel prepares to hear testimony from Mike Pence. As senators weigh a TikTok ban, one Republican breaks with the party in opposition. This as Arkansas files a lawsuit against the platform over mental health concerns. Russia appears to be breaking out its nuclear weapons. This comes after President Putin said he'd deploy nuclear missiles to strategic positions in Belarus. And the White House responds to Benjamin Netanyahu saying it's okay for friends to disagree after the Israeli leader pushed back against criticism from President Biden on domestic issues. We look at what's happening on the ground and in diplomacy. The local community in Nashville, Tennessee, is mourning the victims of the Monday school shooting. Meanwhile, Democrats and Republicans in Congress give their reactions. The local community in Nashville is trying to heal, two days after a shooter killed three children and three adults at a Christian private school. The school administrator, Katherine Kuntz, was among the victims. I don't know if this is right, but I heard on one of the body cams an employee at the church said Everyone's on lockdown, but we're missing two kids. And I guarantee you, I can say this without any hesitation that Catherine was looking for those kids. Nashville police identified the shooting suspect as 28-year-old Audrey Hale. Police say they believe she planned to hit other targets. The five other victims were identified as Evelyn Deakhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney, all nine years old, and adults Cynthia Peake and Mike Hill. The faith communities, all of them, covenant, Woodmont Christian, Woodmont Baptist, all the other churches in Green Hills have stepped up and we're doing everything we can to help these families get through this. A former instructor, Maria Colomy, is speaking out about her previous interactions with Hale at the Nasi College of Art and Design. She told the New York Times that Hale had an emotional breakdown on the first day of classes six years ago. Hale's parents also told police she was under a doctor's care for an emotional disorder. In their update on Wednesday, the Nashville police said, We've talked to the school. We have uh, some of our executive staff meeting uh, with the school. Uh, I met with the school this morning. We met with the parents. And as of right now, we don't have any indication uh, there was any problems uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the school or at home. Over on Capitol Hill, Democrats are calling for more gun control in response to the shooting. And so we're demanding that Congress act. Because the level of gun violence in this country is unacceptable, it's unconscionable, and it's un-American. Republicans, on the other hand, say it's necessary to wait until the investigation plays out before any discussions on gun control. When we get the, the facts in from this uh, current investigation, um, we'll, uh, we'll have a better assessment of that. But I think right now it's just premature to talk about it. And I, and I think there are a lot of uh, grieving, hurting families in Nashville. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is also offering his approach. He argued there needs to be more law enforcement in schools. Ramaswamy said, quote, the real question is why this criminal was able to get into that school in Nashville in the first place. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTV News. The Nashville shooter's transgender identity is causing a controversy in Arizona. 
Governor Katie Hobbs' press secretary is resigning after apparently calling for violence against those who oppose transgenderism. The Arizona governor's press secretary, Jocelyn Berry, posted this image on her Twitter account on Monday, just after the Nashville school shooting. The caption reads, us when we see transphobes. The suspect in the Nashville school shooting was born as a woman and identifying as a man. Hobbs's office confirmed earlier today that Berry resigned following pressure from her circle and other lawmakers. The governor's office said in a statement, quote, The governor does not condone violence in any form. The post by the press secretary is not reflective of the values of the administration. And the Manhattan grand jury examining former President Trump's alleged role in the hush money case is taking a month-long break. Meanwhile, a judge has ordered Mike Pence to testify in the January 6th probe. NTD's Arlene Richards has those details. The Manhattan grand jury investigating allegations by District Attorney Alvin Bragg against former President Trump isn't expected to vote on an indictment for at least a month, according to sources. The reason? A pre-planned month-long break that was scheduled in January. The panel last met on Monday and heard additional testimony from former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker, who appeared for the second time. The break pushes any indictment to the end of April at the earliest. Bragg alleges Trump made a $130,000 payment to adult film actress Stormy Daniels during his 2016 presidential campaign. Daniels said she had an affair with Trump, which he denies. Trump denied any wrongdoing associated with the payment. In previous reports, the panel was expected to reconvene next week for Trump's case, but a source told Politico they will meet on an unrelated matter. Trump praised the jury on Wednesday after learning they wouldn't be meeting this week. In a true social post, he said, I have gained such respect for the grand jury and perhaps even the grand jury system as a whole. The evidence is so overwhelming in my favor. He credited the panel for not being what he called a rubber stamp. But the grand jury in the January 6th case is expected to hear testimony from Mike Pence. A judge has reportedly ordered the former vice president to testify about conversations he had with Trump leading up to January 6, 2021. The DOJ's special counsel Jack Smith is probing allegations that Trump attempted to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's lawyers objected to Pence's testimony, citing executive privilege. Pence's attorneys challenged the subpoena on constitutional grounds. Pence talked to Newsmax about it. When I received a subpoena from the Justice Department, I said that I thought it was not only unprecedented to ask a vice president uh, to come into court to testify about a president with whom they serve, but I also thought it was unconstitutional, believing that the Constitution's speech and debate protections applied to me when I was serving as president of the Senate on January the 6th. Pence told reporters on Wednesday that he has nothing to hide. Arlene Richards, NTD News. TikTok taking more heat today. The platform is now facing a lawsuit from the state of Arkansas over its effect on mental health. This comes as lawmakers on Capitol Hill are weighing how to deal with the app. Some pushing for an outright ban. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more from Capitol Hill. TikTok has emerged as a dicey topic for lawmakers. Since TikTok CEO came and testified before the House committee last week, lawmakers have been pressed over and over again about how far they're willing to go when exercising oversight on the platform. There are a number of TikTok-related bills floating around both the House and the Senate, some even calling for an outright ban, such as what we see from Senator Josh Hawley and Congressman Ken Buck. 
TikTok wasn't designed to make our lives better. TikTok is designed to addict and then to be used as a gateway into our personal lives. But it's looking like an outright ban on TikTok will struggle to get enough support. And we can look to the Senate for an example. Senator Josh Hawley aimed to bring his TikTok ban bill to the floor for a vote, but it was opposed by another Republican, Senator Rand Paul, who argues government overreach, saying that it infringes on Americans' First Amendment rights. Earlier, I spoke to Democrat Senator Joe Manchin. He says he does support a TikTok ban, but does not support a a bill that singles out TikTok alone. Watch. Well, I'm all for banning TikTok. Yeah, what they've done in my state too to game changers. Do you support uh, Senator Hawley's ban that he's proposed? No, I'm, I'm the, the one that makes all the sense in the world is a bipartisan one. Now, the majority of lawmakers that we've spoken to are eager to do something to address the national security concerns posed by TikTok and other privacy concerns that they have, but not everyone is on board with an outright ban. And you can't just ban one company, even though TikTok is a major problem. You can't just ban a company. You need to have a comprehensive uh, privacy law. If you ban TikTok next week, there will be TikTok too the week after. This says Arkansas has just filed a lawsuit against TikTok over its negative impacts on mental health. Videos of alcohol use, drug use, and sexual content are pervasive on the app, available to anyone who claims to be 13 years or older. And lawmakers here on Capitol Hill have shared this concern about the social influence of TikTok as well as other social media platforms. They say they're taking this into consideration as they craft their legislative approach. The numbers are staggering. One in three teenagers, teenage girls in America last year contemplated suicide. To take this TikTok investigation and begin to discuss how we put a privacy bill of rights on the books. Now, there is growing support behind a bipartisan bill that aims to counter the threat posed by tech platforms owned by foreign adversaries. And this is a more broad bill that has already been endorsed by the White House. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. China is threatening retaliation if House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meets with Taiwan's president next week. How the White House responds as President Biden holds the second summit for democracy. NTD's Iris Tao with more. We're at an inflection point in history here. At the administration's second summit for democracy, President Biden offering an optimistic outlook on democracy around the world. Democracies of the world are getting stronger, not weaker. Autocracies of the world are getting weaker, not stronger. But the hopeful message comes as China unleashes a new wave of threats against the U.S. China on Wednesday threatened to, quote, resolutely fight back if U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy follows through with a planned meeting with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, who's making a stop in the U.S. during an upcoming international trip. The White House on Wednesday dismissing Beijing's threats, saying there's no need for China to react. This transit is consistent with our long-standing, unofficial relationship with Taiwan, and it is consistent with the United States' one-China policy. There is no reason, none, for the Chinese to overreact here. Interactions between the U.S. and Taiwan have increasingly drawn ire from China, which claims a democratically ruled island as its own. After then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year, Beijing retaliated by sending fighter jets toward the island and cutting off military lines of communication with the U.S. Meanwhile, the White House maintains... People's Republic of China should not 
use this transit as a pretext to step up any aggressive activity around the Taiwan Strait. The current House Speaker has not announced any plans to visit Taiwan, but he did tell NTD last month. I don't think China can tell me where I can go at any time at any place. And President Tsai says she would defend democracy and not bow to China's pressure. She's tentatively set to meet with McCarthy and other members of Congress in Los Angeles next week. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. For more coverage on the Taiwanese president's visit to the U.S., be sure to tune in for China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on NTD. Next, the Senate today voting to repeal authorizations for the use of military force against Iraq. This is a significant moment as Congress tries to reassert authority and in military intervention abroad. Every year we keep these AUMFs on the books is another chance for a future administration to abuse them. War powers belong in the hands of Congress. And so we have an obligation to prevent future presidents from exploiting these AUMFs to bumble us into a new Middle East conflict. Authorization for the use of military force gave the U.S. president broad powers to conduct military operations without approval from Congress. Repealing the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of force in Iraq marks a formal conclusion to the conflicts. It's also a symbolic reassertion of Congress's ability to declare war. Some Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, oppose repealing the war authorizations. They argue the authorizations give the White House flexibility to respond to threats around the world at a dangerous time. The bill now goes to the House for a vote. Speaker McCarthy has signaled support for it. The White House also said it supports the measure. And Russia appears to be readying its nuclear weapons. This comes after President Vladimir Putin said he's going to deploy nuclear missiles to Belarus. President Biden said Putin's announcement was a dangerous kind of talk. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. On Wednesday, Russia broke out its nuclear weapons and mobile launchers to perform training exercises in Siberia. Russia's intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads have a range of about 7,000 miles and could reach anywhere in the U.S. if fired from eastern Russia. This training comes after Russian President Vladimir Putin said on Saturday that Russia was going to deploy nuclear weapons to its neighboring country, Belarus. Here's John Kirby's reaction on Tuesday. We're watching this as best we can. We haven't seen any indications that Mr. Putin is leaning towards or getting closer to or indicating any preparations for the use of, of tactical nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine. And on Wednesday, President Biden said this when asked about Putin's plan to deploy nuclear weapons to Belarus. This is dangerous kind of talk, and it's worse. Meanwhile, some villagers in Ukraine have refused to leave, even though they're surrounded by constant sounds of war. Only God knows. Only he can decide. You lie down to sleep, cover yourself, and start thinking, will you wake up the next morning or not? If you wake up, you thank God for it. And after visiting Ukrainian troops near the Russian border, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky explained why Ukraine was fighting so intensely in Bakhmut. Because that will be weaker for him. He will in any victory. Yes, he will sell this victory. He will sell this victory to West, to his society, to China, to Iran, to all the countries. That was the first step. Now, wait, wait a minute. 
Wait a minute. I will, I will have this issue with Ukraine. Then another step, another step, another step. Meanwhile, lawmakers pressured U.S. officials on Wednesday over the ongoing funding to support Ukraine. In a hearing, Representative Scott Perry said the U.S. is facing its own fiscal problems. Where the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund is suspended, where the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefit Fund is suspended, and we're literally funding the pensions and the operation of government in Ukraine. Zelensky added this about the support he receives from the U.S. The United States really understands that they, if they will stop, help us, we will not win. Jason Perry, NTD News. And the White House today saying it's okay for friends to disagree, cautiously welcoming Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's remarks in his response to President Biden's earlier criticism of the leader's efforts to enact a now-paused judicial overhaul in Israel that sparked protests in the country. Earlier today, I spoke with a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and the author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead, Aryeh Lightstone. He's in Israel now. Let's hear his perspective. Arye Lightstone, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Now, you've just touched down in Israel. Tensions are rising there. What have you seen so far? So you have an enormous amount of energy, and part of that energy is completely and totally destructive, and part of that energy is democracy at work. And the key is, do we allow constructive voices to win or do you allow destructive voices to win? And I think that is the tension that exists here in Israel on the street today. And the tensions also seem to be rising between Israel and the U.S. After Biden suggested that Netanyahu walk away from his proposed Supreme Court reforms, how do you see Biden's move and the response? Uh, highly inappropriate for the U.S. to be meddling at the highest level into what is a robust Israeli democracy. You don't see the U.S. meddling in other non-democracies in terms of how policy should wind up working out. It seems a little bit uh, almost crazy where President Biden is interfering directly with the elected leader of the state of Israel on an issue, even to that extent, pressuring this prime minister to take specific policy steps that arguably he was elected to do the opposite for. And the U.S. and Israel rarely clash publicly. Does, does this mark a change in the relationship, do you think? I don't think it's a permanent change in the relationship. I certainly hope on behalf of the United States that it is not. I know when we had an opportunity to help the U.S.'s relationship, we disagreed all the time with Israel, but we did it quietly. In the Middle East, when you create a vacuum of space or disagreement, it allows the bad actors to rise up. And what President Biden is allowing right now is to create distance in between the United States of America and Israel. And that doesn't help our number one ally. In fact, it helps all of their enemies. Now, some experts have said that Netanyahu's proposed reform is necessary, that many in the country are actually on board. What do you think? Yeah, uh, without a doubt, there's a difference between policy and procedure. Had somebody else introduced the reform, it likely would have been met differently. Now, is the reform perfect? Absolutely not. Should it be negotiated on? Absolutely, it should be. And that's how democracies choose what their future should be. But if you were to just take a person off the street in Israel and say, is there a percentage of this reform that you would agree with? My guess is more than 80% of Israelis will agree with more than 80% of the reforms as they were proposed. 
Critics are saying that the reform threatens Israel's democratic system. What's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, if the reform is passed as it is right now, what it would threaten is the ability to pass legislation with cooperation. The reforms don't threaten Israel's democratic uh, fabric. What it does is it says judges need to be chosen in a way that has some form of accountability. Today, judges are cho chosen by other judges, and they're able to go ahead and adjudicate the laws that the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, comes up with based upon their own feelings of these esoteric words called fairness and justice. Israel does not have a constitution. So every judge that is practicing the laws from the high court is using their best judgment. So couple that with the fact that the group of judges chooses the next group of judges, you have a very arbitrary group of people deciding on the laws of Israel without any checks and balances. So this actually brings Israel closer to democracy, not further away from it. And so what do you see as the best way forward for Israel on this issue? Look, Israel is weakest when it is divided. Israel is strongest when it's most united. I do believe that the 80-80 rule applies. 80% of the people believe in 80% of the reform. The country should come together and decide that this is the reform that can be passed with the broadest possible support and move forward. And I would call it bipartisan, but they're about 11 parties. So 11 party uh, uh, unanimity on this to be able to move forward. The threats are very real today in Israel. Iran and Saudi just signed an agreement. Iran is advanced their nuclear uh, stages to a level that it hasn't been seen in our lifetime. Uh, Ukraine, Russia, Syria, uh, Hezbollah, there's a lot of challenges. Terrorism is on the rise in the West Bank. This is not the time to be rallying in the streets against each other. It's the time to be rallying in the streets for each other to promote a safer and more secure Israel. Arie Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. Thank you so much. Thank you. And coming up, Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and over a thousand other industry leaders are calling for a pause on artificial intelligence development. They say AI has profound risks to humanity. And in Congress today, a hearing on the need for regulations on collegiate athletes' name image likeness deals, including debate over whether they should be paid as employees. That and more coming up. Stop training artificial intelligence, at least temporarily. That's what over a thousand tech leaders want. They're AI researchers, CEOs, and industry figures like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak. They signed an open letter stating that AI could profoundly change the history of life on Earth. The letter asks, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? Should we risk control of our civilization? Such decisions must not be delegated to unelected tech leaders, the letter says. Rather, powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. 
The signers want to immediately pause training for all systems more powerful than GPT-4 for at least six months. They even urged world governments to step in if a pause can't be enacted quickly. And as of right now, not a single person from OpenAI has signed the letter. OpenAI is the leading firm in generative AI. It was mentioned explicitly in the letter. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The hot-button subject of college athletes' name-image-likeness deals and what kind of federal regulation is needed to ensure fairness has caught the attention of Congress. At a hearing on Wednesday, one witness, Florida State softball player Kaylee Mudge, testified positively about the NIL opportunities the state has given her. Yet Mudge says each state having its own laws has created plenty of confusion and an unbalanced playing field. Another witness was the executive director and founder of the College Football Players Association. He said that NIL wasn't enough. In the coming years, FBS football, particularly at the Power Five level, will be awash in many new billions of dollars. The players that generate this wealth deserve to share in it. Yet his viewpoint wasn't shared by most other witnesses, including former college football player and NFL veteran Trey Burton. I'm against revenue sharing um, from like you know, in the sense of employee or employment mm -hmm. because that's where, in my, in my opinion, amateurism becomes professionalism. As an Olympic sport athlete, I'm also against revenue sharing. Um, just I want future softball players, future college athletes to have the same experience that I did, and it's scary to think that um, the funds that are used to fund softball could be taken away. Federal lawmakers haven't proposed any legislation yet, but Representative Gus Bilirakis is chairing a subcommittee to ensure athletes have transparent and fair deals. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has 10 games on, including the expected home debut of Kevin Durant in Phoenix against Minnesota. The former MVP was traded to the Suns back on February 9th, but has played just three games since because of injuries. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL is a triple header tonight, including a pivotal Western Conference matchup as the defending champion Colorado Avalanche, who've now won nine of the last 10 games, faced Minnesota with a chance to pass them in the standings. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.